Hi there, and welcome to episode number 293 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. With me today is Vera Tobin. There is so much meta in this episode. It is really fun. So every now and again on Facebook, which I'm pretty much perpetually mad at at this point, I learned that friends of mine from kindergarten are doing really cool stuff. Today I am talking with Vera Tobin, who is a professor of cognitive science at Case Western University, author of the upcoming book, The Elements of Surprise, which comes out on April 16th, and my best friend from kindergarten. Her book is all about how the surprises and twists and unexpected revelations that we love to read in fiction actually work on our brains on a cognitive level. In her work, she breaks down the different ways in which we process surprises and twists in the books we read and movies we watch and the structure of those different types of surprises. So as you might imagine, when I saw her on Facebook talking about her upcoming book, I was extremely super nosy. Harvard University Press was cool enough to send me an ARC. Thank you, guys, even though I am neither a cognitive scientist nor an academic. But it was a really fascinating read, and I'm so pleased I got to read it. And I'm not just saying that because Vera was my best friend in kindergarten. When we recorded this, we probably hadn't spoken to each other in person or by phone for at least 20, maybe 25 years, but we had a really good time. We talk about a whole range of things, including the importance of surprise, but also cognitive satisfaction in genre fiction, the parallels between literary surprises and orgasms, the categorizing of spoilers, the different types and the different effects. And we also talk about the book The Duke's Wager by Edith Layton, which features a very twisty romance indeed. And we do spoil it while we're discussing it. So if you haven't read it and you want to read it, you might want to skip the part where we start talking about The Duke's Wager. Now, every now and again, I hear from different listeners of the podcast. So this message is particularly for Lena. Lena emailed me to say that she listens to our podcasts in big groups, and I wanted to say hello, Lena. This is, I hope I'm not freaking you out. I am so glad you're hanging out with us. I hope tonight is very quiet, and I hope this episode helps you get through your long, long night shift. Now, if you want to email us and tell us things, I love that. You should totally should. Uh, our email address is sbjpodcast at gmail.com, or you can email me at Sarah, with an H, S-A-R-A-H, at smartbitchestrashybooks.com. I really love hearing from you as you listen, and it's really cool when you tell me what's going on. So, hey, please feel free. Email us. It's rad. This week's episode is brought to you by What Are You Afraid Of? by Alexandra Ivy. Serial abductions, copycat murders. When a best-selling true crime author begins receiving threatening photographs and trophies of murders committed by a killer obsessed with her writing and research, she enlists the help of the one man with the resources to help her discover the killer's identity before it's too late. What Are You Afraid Of? by New York Times best-selling author Alexandra Ivy is a chilling and pulse-pounding work of romantic suspense that will have you questioning your own fears. What Are You Afraid Of? is on sale now, wherever books are sold, and at kensingtonbooks.com. And thank you to Kensington for sponsoring this month's episodes. This week's transcript will be carefully hand-compiled by Garlic Knitter. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. Every episode gets a transcript, and this transcript is being brought to you by Whiskey Sharp Jagged by Lauren Dane. Victor Orlov took one look at the wary gaze and slow-to-trust personality of the deliciously sexy and fascinating Rachel Dolan, and knew he wanted more than just a casual friendship. But as a natural protector, he also knew bossiness and overprotective maneuvering would push her away rather than draw her close. He'll use every tool in his easygoing, laid-back arsenal to convince her to take a chance on them. Rachel's flourishing new career as a tattoo artist has brought color back into a life previously damaged by a series of bad choices and violence. She knows that she can trust Vic. It's herself she's not sure of. She doesn't want to be caged or controlled, doesn't want to be protected so much that she has no ability to make her own choices. And damn if the man doesn't know that. So when Vic finally drops all pretenses of just friends and focuses all his careful attention and irresistible seduction on her, Rachel knows she's falling hard for the laid-back pretty boy that she's discovered has a relentlessly steel spine when it comes to her, and she cannot resist. You can find Whiskey Sharp Jagged on sale now, wherever books are sold. 
Now, I have some compliments. This is so fun. To Mona, two days ago, one of your best friends from grade school thought about you and how great you are, and it made her entire week better. And to JR, there is a thing that you do that is uniquely you, and your talent for that thing is so remarkable. Don't stop, especially because it brings you joy. Now, we have a podcast Patreon, and if you would like to experience a handcrafted, heartfelt, genuine compliment from the strange and mysterious mind of, well, me, head to patreon.com slash smartbitches. Pledges start at $1 a month, and they make a deeply appreciated difference in the podcast production. And I do mean that. Uh, revenue options change constantly, and affiliate program percentages are consistently decreasing, as are a lot of advertising budgets. So your support, your direct support, means that the show continues, and that is really wonderful. And when you make a monthly pledge, you're not only helping the show, you're helping me commission transcripts for older episodes, which is also awesome. I do want to thank some of the Patreon folks personally. So to Rising Moon, Jennifer, Kathy, Olivia, Galia, I hope I said that right, maybe it's Galia, and Jason, thank you for being part of the Patreon community. Are there other ways to support the podcast? Of course there are. Sing along with me. You can leave a review wherever or however you listen to podcasts. You can tell a friend. You can subscribe. You can email me and say, hey, I want to tell you about this podcast episode and you made me think of this book that I really love and I'm going to tell you all about it. I love those emails. It's all great. Thank you so much for hanging out with me each week. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. At the end of the show, I'm going to tell you who this is and where you can find it. I'm also going to have a terrible joke, and I'll tell you what's coming up on the site next week. And of course, in the podcast entry will be all the books we talk about. But now, on with the podcast. Let's do this. Hi, I'm Vera Tobin, and... Uh, I am an assistant professor of cognitive science at Case Western Reserve University, and I recently wrote a book called Elements of Surprise that is about storytelling and surprises and excitement and how it, these things capitalize on what we might otherwise think of as weak spots in the way that you think. This is so cool. Now, I have known you since I was four years old. Indeed, and since I was four years old, too. Right, because we met in kindergarten. Yeah, I might have been five, I guess, at the time. I don't remember I don't how old I was. <laughs> I, it was a very long time ago. Yes. But one of the weird things that I have to concede a sort of grudging good feeling, just one for Facebook, <laughs> yeah. just the one good feeling, it's only this one, is that every now and again, I find out that people who I knew when I was a kid are doing some really cool shit. And you are doing some really cool shit. That is how I feel about you too. I remember <laughs> going, no, wait, that Sarah is, is this Sarah? I'm so excited. It was That's like, Sarah over there. <laughs> it's like lights going off and, and wonderful things bursting in my mind in the best way. So Okay, that's kind of was, wait, when I saw the cover of your book, I was like, oh, 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 hello. This is very relevant <laughs> to all of my interests. Um, so your publisher was cool enough to send me a uh, review copy, which I, as a former amateur academic, uh, wrote in Yay. most, I, I underlined the living hell out of this arc. Like this, this arc's going nowhere because no one will be able to read it now. It's full of my writing. Splendid. So, I'm a big fan of underlying and scribbling. And I have yeah. an erasable pen and it's like my favorite pen. I have to tell you about my feelings about erasable pens <laughs> because I <laughs> you have, have strong, strong feelings. feelings about erasable <laughs> pens. So there's a, there's a type called friction. Yes, that's my favorite kind. Yeah. Because you can, did you know that they have felt tip pens? What? What? No. Yes. Oh my <laughs> God. Many, many colors of felt tip pen that use the same amazing, uh, you know, heat related erasable technology. It is amazing. Uh, I'm going to have to find some. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Okay. So this conversation <laughs> has already made me broke because now I'm going to buy pens. Right. I feel you. So sometime, sometime between kindergarten and then high school, because we also went to the same high school. Yeah. And now you went out and got a PhD in cognitive, or you got a PhD in English. I did. And now you teach cognitive science. Can That's you right. explain? Like what, how does that? What, how, I generally speaking, 
yeah. as, a, as, a, as an amateur at all of this, generally speaking, I don't immediately think, you know, I'm going to go do science with my English degree. Indeed. Well, so it's the, not a thing. the connect the dots here is linguistics. Oh, I like those. Those are rad. Yeah. So, you know, what happened was, um, so my undergrad degree was in English, English literature. Right. Um, and I took some time off between undergrad and grad school and I got really Very interested. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, I got really interested in linguistics. I was sort of, I had friends who were studying linguistics and I was like, found myself reading all of their their homework and stuff. So I got really interested in this and I thought that these interests connected because, you know, you may have noticed that literature is made of language. Wait, what? <laughs> you know, I know. Shocking, no way. but true. Uh, so I got very interested in this and, and doing linguistics. And specifically, I was getting really interested in cognitive linguistics, which is this sort of approach to language that has to do with looking at ways that language reflects sort of general tendencies in the way that we think. So not just language-specific aspects of cognition, but more general aspects. And I was really interested in this. And I thought this seems applicable to all kinds of stuff that I studied when I was studying literature. This is so exciting. And I went out and the program that I found um, where I could study these things at the same time was at the University of Maryland in College Park. Which is like right up the road from where I live now. Yeah. So uh, right, right in your backyard, basically. And um, there's a linguistics department at the University of Maryland, but they're not so into that aspect of linguistics. And the hmm. place where there were faculty members doing this was actually in the English department. So my PhD is in English linguistics in an English department. So I was able to go on taking literature classes and also to take classes in cognitive science and in linguistics all while I was doing my PhD. And well, that's I, just terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty swell... Swell deal. So what exactly is cognitive science? Is it the science of how our brains learn stuff? Well, I mean, that's certainly part of it. Um, so basically, the idea with cognitive science is it's a relatively young designation for departments. So like, basically, you and I are about as old as you could get and have it be even conceivable that we would have a PhD in cognitive science, which I don't, but mm -hmm. that I could. Um, because there weren't departments of cognitive science and programs in cognitive science um, until right. really recently. Instead, there were people studying cognitive psychology, cognitive linguistics, uh, you know, cognition and learning, yes, cognition, you know, philosophy of mind, all these questions right. about how people think that people were studying in a variety of different disciplines and different places and different ways. And so the idea is that programs in cognitive science are trying to like bring people studying the same things in different ways together. And there's also programs in various places that do this too. So the idea is the cognitive bit is that typically this means um, at least engaging with the aspects of thinking that are really I feel myself about to say things that sound really fatuous. <laughs> um, but, you know, this idea is like higher order um, cognition, the things that um, like language and like um, mathematics and like religion and like art and all of these and, you know, sort of complex problem solving and all the kind of very humanish aspects of thinking. Uh, mm -hmm. focusing on them and people studying them in a bunch of different disciplinary ways. Ideally, talking to each other is kind of the idea. So that's how I get to talk about linguistic literature and linguistics and call it cognitive science. Yeah. Okay, that's a seriously cool field. That's seriously cool. The idea of studying how our brains acquire knowledge and how our brains respond and learn and react to things is fascinating when you apply it to literature. Now you have a book. This is the worst okay. question to ask anyone who's ever written about a mm. written a book. Okay, great. I can't wait. Tell me about your book. Oh yeah, that is terrible. Okay. <laughs> it's a horrible question, but it's like, dude, you wrote this cool book and it's also a course too, right? You have a course yeah. that's also the elements of surprise. I do. I do have a course. Um, and you know, there's a lot of overlap between the stuff that I talk about in my book and the stuff that we focus on in the course, although they diverge in some ways. So right. you know, the course is really hey, let's talk about the cognitive science of surprise in all kinds of different ways. So, you know, it involves things like how 
surprise plays out in visual processing. Like, oh, a lot of when you're looking around a room, you're not processing everything that you see um, in the right. same, <laughs> really at all, let alone at the same level of sort of attention and depth as you may pay to little bits of it. A lot of what your brain is doing is just kind of filling things in based on expectations, right? So you see, right. you often may even see things that aren't there or fails to see things that are there because your expectations are so, are just driving the bus, you know? Uh, you can be surprised in all of these little ways just by seeing things <laughs> that you didn't expect to be there on through with the kind of stuff I talk about in my book. So the book um, really focuses on uh, a, not just surprises in storytelling, although really that, but especially the kind of surprise that works like this. You're reading along or you're watching a film and you're formulating some idea of what's going on. You feel like you have a sense of who these people are or what happened or what have you. And then the surprise tells you not just something new happens. It's not just this kind of surprise of, oh, now a cat jumped out at you. <laughs> but right. you have to revise your idea of what was really going on. Yeah, so lots of surprises work this way, right? Like this right. Is a, 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 a small or large way. A lot of story surprises work this way. But actually, to me, this seems kind of insane that they can do this, that, that a story can lead you to think one thing and then tell you, no, it wasn't that. Mm -hmm. And that you say, oh, amazing. I'm surprised. <laughs> right. I was wrong. It was actually something else all along when the only source of information you have about what's going on is the story. Is the right? story. And the story effectively has misled or deceived you or yeah. lied to you or someone has been, yeah. you know, occluding the actual truth. Right. And if that the fact that there is even any way to do this, let alone that stories do this successfully all the time, any way to do this so that your response is, oh, that's so cool. I now see that. What I thought was going on isn't, rather than I see that this is a completely incoherent text that tells me one thing and now tells me something else, like, what is this crap, is amazing yes. to me. <laughs> yes, like there's a, a quote in the introduction where someone who's a, a mystery reader in an yeah. online discussion says, I want to have been fooled or tricked, and I enjoy being fooled or tricked, but I do not enjoy being cheated. Yeah, right. So, so it's like surprise without the cheating element. Right. And, you know, the fact... And the fact is that when it goes wrong, people do feel cheated. They don't just yes. feel like, oh, well, that didn't work. <laughs> like, ah, yes. I hate you. Like one of my least favorite uh, tricks in a mystery is to introduce the culprit in the last three chapters. Right. So I've been oh, busy God, trying to pick so apart cheap. who it was and they show up at the end and I'm like, oh, well. Well, you just that, wasted my time. Yeah, that was not satisfying. Yeah, yeah like, well, <laughs> great. Thanks a lot. Ugh. Yeah. And so I find that really interesting, too, like that people are really kind of invested in this deception, deception right, of themselves. Right, that, you know, when it comes <laughs> off, they love it. And when it doesn't come off, it doesn't just sort of fall flat or they don't just go like, oh, blah. They go, I, why did you cheat me? I feel cheated and like betrayed yes. and enraged. <laughs> Not always. But, you know, it's like that's really the risk with these kinds of surprises. And yeah. twists. So in the book, you look at um, sort of sleight of hand reveals oh. where it, un, unreliable people or unreliable characters have been misled or are actively trying to mislead you, the reader, or if information is presented as non-essential and is later be revealed to be incredibly important. And you're examining all the different ways in which the trick is employed in writing. Yeah. So did you identify any specific elements of surprise? Like if someone comes up to you and says, okay, so what are the elements of surprise that created a twist in a book? What are yeah, they? Yeah, well. Like, do you have a list? Well, I, don't, I, hmm. I feel like it's hard to actually lay it out entirely as a list, but I do kind of try to, right. to chunk them into some, some overlapping categories, right? So um, broadly speaking, um, there's the how to bury information so that giving the information that you can overturn later on 
ways right. of presenting it early on so that people don't notice it too much, but mm-hmm. that it's sort of available to find later. So burying um, crucial information early on. And there's a bunch of different ways you can do this. Um, and there's mm-hmm. some nice cognitive science conveniently on um, what's called depth of processing. So the, the, the fact that people don't pay equal attention to everything that they're told <laughs> um, in various kinds of ways. So, you know, you can bury things in, in little asides and you can um, underspecify things so that you're not drawing attention to the particular um, detail that we'll be telling later on. Um, so there's that whole category of of elements of surprise of how to bury information early so that it's it's they're waiting to be deployed. Uh, there's yes. also sort of finessing the reveal. So you want to give people this feeling, especially in that kind of mystery of reveal, that they did have the information that they needed. They just didn't happen to put it together mm-hmm. the right way, right? Um, right. But using actually some of the same strategies for sort of sliding information in subtly, like you can do it in a little presupposition instead. And I'll, I can tell you more about what presuppositions are in a little bit if you want. But, you know, you can slide it into what somebody's saying. And if it's subtle enough, you can actually give people extra information and act as if they had it all along. Uh, that kind of seals mm-hmm. the deal. Yeah. Yes. One of my one of my favorite ways that that's been done is by a writer named Sherry Thomas, who has a new series where she's cast Sherlock Holmes as a woman named oh, yeah, Charlotte. Yeah. I haven't read these, but I've seen them. Oh, you would like them, especially as methods of deception, because at one point, uh, actually several points in both of the books, there are pieces of information that to the men of mm-hmm. that time appear to mean Perfect. something. But when a woman translates it for them, according to propriety and boundary and and class boundary and what a servant should or shouldn't be doing in the chamber of her male uh, uh, employer, all of that information takes on an entirely different, different oh, meaning, but it's only understood through the language and perspective of women who operate in that world. It was so cool. Uh, that so stuff cool. is really great. And, <laughs> and, you know, a large part of what I talk about is basically you get a lot of people sort of historically and critically tend to think about plot twists as uh, like sort of storytelling gimmicks that are in some way yes. um, separate from the kind of work that stories might do that is about character and how do you yes those chapters were my favorite thank you <laughs> uh yeah because see the thing is that of course you know that they're not you know that for one thing, um, twists of character are twists of plot, right? And so the, yes. all the exciting things that happen with characterization themselves typically involve having characters do things that are surprising, but feel in retrospect like they could have been anticipated, even though you didn't, that they feel of a piece, right? So, so building good characters and good characterization requires building in these twists. But also getting people engineering even sort of the plottiest plot twists. So many of the strategies that I find and discuss for making those work themselves depend on managing perspectives. So exactly like what you were talking about, um, where you need to set up characters who have different perspectives that obscure important information or highlight information differently so that you can engineer sort of the unfolding realization about the significance of things that you already knew about. You have to do it through characters and you have to do it through aligning people's sort of attentions and sympathy through those characters and taking advantage of patterns in the way that we do it. So those are the big, that's like sort of the big pieces um, of what I talk about involve um, engaging with these two big areas of cognitive science. Uh, One is stuff about the curse of knowledge, which has to do with people's tendency um, to project once you know something or think you know something, uh, it's really hard to suppress that knowledge or that 
sort of framing, that way of seeing things, that information about things, that interpretation of things, when you're thinking about what other people know or what would be obvious if you didn't know it, right? Um, right. That basically, uh, when you know someone's intentions, they seem more transparent. When you know one interpretation of some puzzling event, it seems like the obvious one. Uh, and sort of all of these kinds of things, when you tie them to some character's limited viewpoint, give you lots of opportunities to do exactly this kind of sort of impression management that you have to do to lead people down a garden path in these stories. Right. And then the other one has to do with um, how bad people are at keeping track of the context in which they encountered some piece of information. Right. <laughs> so this also gives you, as a storyteller, lots of opportunities to um, to give your readers some interpretation or some framing or some maybe misleading piece of information or label for something and so on. Um, and then if you get them to sort of take it on board, they'll often lose track of the context in which they learned it or and sort of projected out in various kinds of ways. So you can lead people to make lots of inferences and you can do this to lead them astray or to seal the deal mm -hmm. on your final twist too. I really want to talk about that in the Duke's wager. Can we talk about the Duke's wager? Oh, it's on my list. Okay. Bring okay. it because I don't want to jump so the reason you read the Duke's wager, <laughs> no, please okay. jump in. Please. It's great. A while ago on Facebook, you asked me to recommend a romance that featured a plot element that hides info from the reader because it's hidden from a viewpoint character or a romance in which we as the reader are misled because a character is misled. And it's and it's interesting to hear you talk about the cognitive uh, construction of these pieces of deception, because not only does the writer have to orchestrate the deception in the text, but then has to make sure the text orchestrates the deception to the oh, reader. So like, they have to build it. It's this is just amazing. Well, so you asked me for a romance that basically lies to you. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, the Duke's Wager. Tell me how you liked it. This is one of my favorite. I love um, it. Class. So, yes, Layton is so great. So tell me. Tell me okay, well, so first of all, I wanted I do want to put a pin in that point of the other thing about the curse of knowledge. Like so the difficulty in yes. suppressing information that you've been given, um, the, the relevance of that to the writer's situation is something I really want to come back mm -hmm. to because sure, sure. Yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. But okay, so I love the Duke's Wager. So that alone, has, you know, speaking of Facebook getting you something nice, like, <laughs> like yes. oh, that recommendation alone, you know, uh, got a little bit of forgiveness for Facebook for me for now. Now, you know, I mean, destroying democracy is <laughs> the big debt. The Duke's Wager isn't enough to pay for it, but <laughs> but it was pretty good that's that's kind of how i feel about facebook too like generally speaking i'm so mad at facebook and yet yet i get to learn about cool shit that cool people are doing and i probably wouldn't have learned about it any other way because it's not like i would have encountered it but either way tell me what you thought okay well so i really really loved it and it was great because i didn't i didn't read anything about it before i read it I, what i read about it was you said well try this one like okay i'll download it on my kindle yeah. can do um, so it was really a pleasure. And so I feel a little bad about the fact that we're going to talk about it and maybe some, so I, I want to be a little cagey in how we talk about it, because what if some of your listeners haven't read it yet? I would hate to ruin it for them. But well, you know, it's funny. One of the things I want to ask you about is the spoilers, because yeah. you have an intro paragraph in the introduction where you're like, listen, I'm going to spoil a whole bunch of stuff to talk about the surprise. You can't talk about the twist without spoiling yeah. it. So I totally understand not wanting to spoil it, but I can also put in the article in the show notes and in the intro, we're going to spoil this book. So if okay. you haven't read it, read it and come back. So go ahead and talk about all the details okay. because the construction, how Edith Layton creates this character is like one of my favorite it's, things in Regency romance. It's really wonderful. And there's like a lot of things we can talk about. So um, the one that really caught my attention. I mean, so I enjoyed the whole thing and it was just a delight from start to finish. And the, you know, the characters are really compelling. I love sort of the back and forth with your growing sympathies towards. Um, so obviously Regina is a really 
engaging, compelling protagonist, which is great because yes. at first, you know, it's not, it's not clear whether she's going to just, she's so good, you know, she's so good mm-hmm. and innocent and like, oh, this is terrible. Right. You know, who likes it? <laughs> but no, because she's very fleshed out and her reactions to when she gets things wrong um, immediately. Right. So the book opens with her profound misunderstanding of what she's doing going out for a night on the town on the wrong night. Uh, And this immediately is very sympathetic, right? Yes. But the thing that really gets me is, so this is a book, I want to talk really about the ending, actually, because um, this is a book where if the sort of the final revelations about, you know, she's going to have to make a choice. You know that the men that she is presented with have both behaved appallingly uh, in varying degrees. Uh, But if it's going to work, you have to come around to feeling good about her choice, right? Um, Even though there are a lot of good reasons why you wouldn't, because, I mean, really, if somebody summarized this book for you and just told you, in fact, I I did this uh, to my husband, I was like, oh, so here's the deal. You know what? Do a summary of the book. Oh gosh, I don't know if I can actually. So let's see if we can do this. How did I do it? I think I said, well, you see what happens is that there's a duke who of the duke of the title, and he loves to pursue women who are not in any position to say no to him. Uh and so he does this in various ways. And for her, he he decides ultimately to make it impossible for her to go back to her family by making it look as if um, she had been uh, making out with him consensually in their hallway. And he's this well-known, terrible womanizer um, so that she has no hope of going back to her family. And then he kidnaps her. Uh, and then, but ultimately it works out to be okay. <laughs> He's the hero. Know, in the end, he's really the best choice for her. <laughs> he was like, yeah, great. absolutely. Great. That sounds really on board and uh, also super feminist. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Of course you book. This book sounds great. Yeah, it sounds very great. And I could see how you would be on board with that. Right. So when you leave out all the middle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's pretty bad. But so... Um, you know, she chooses him. And, you know, this is absolutely a plot line where you know there's going to be a choice. And if you're going to feel satisfied, you're going to have to feel good about her choice. And I know that right. I'm, I know that not everybody is persuaded to have that reaction, right? I think this is a book that does not succeed for everyone. Um, you know, there's just too much character debt for... Yes. Uh, Torque to pay off and can't do it. But a lot of people have the reaction that I did, which is like, yeah, I do feel good about this. And yeah, clearly he's the best choice. You can't go with that guy. He's terrible. Right. But I mean, but he offers her the choice of no choice, right? Like just go on your way. This is obviously important yep. for allowing you to feel good about her choice. Mm-hmm. But, and I'm sure that there are people who read it and are like, yeah, no, you should have picked option C. Take the money and go away and start a school. Um, But that's not where the book lands. And I felt good about it. And part of feeling good about it is feeling good about like the credibility of her decision. So you have to believe not only you have to believe that he would make a good partner, but you also have to Mm -hmm. believe that she would believe that he would make a good partner, that he means what he says and so on. Right. Yes, and that he's not going to park her somewhere and do this to some other women for the rest of his life. Right. So you have to believe that that's correct, and you also have to believe that she isn't being insane in making that choice, right. right? That she's in a position to make that choice. And some of the evidence that we have that this is the right choice comes from things he says and does to her and for her and in front of her, right? Like, so especially it's really crucial that he offers her this option of settling down with no one. Right. Right. But a lot of it doesn't. A lot of what we see about him comes either 
from um, interactions he has with other people when she's far away, you know, with mm-hmm. with his child and his for- former nanny and other people, and from our access to his intentions, right? So we have access to his internal monologues on his part and his puzzling. So we know the details of the motivations behind his actions in a way that nobody else has direct access to. Right. Um, so it's like privileged information that she just doesn't have access to, but it still gets the job done is my point. Right. Um, right. So this is some stuff that really taps into these same tendencies that people have that, you know, when we study them, like in, in a, in a lab situation, in cognitive science, the way they show up is as mistakes that people make mm-hmm. um, like, Oh, you forgot. <laughs> <laughs> that, that this other person doesn't have access to that information. But for right. a novel, this serves as it's very useful to let you do this kind of characterization very efficiently. So yes. even though it doesn't trouble us, I mean, it didn't trouble me anyway, I shouldn't say speak for every reader, but um, this fact that she doesn't have access to all the information that we have that really confirms the correctness of her decision mm-hmm. It doesn't bother us too much because we're happy to sort of interleave what we know about the sincerity of his intentions and the conclusion she makes. And since they line up, you know, all those gaps are very efficiently filled in because they align with our natural tendencies anyway. Of right. Sort of projecting information from one perspective to another when we're thinking about these things. And... Because we, as the reader, so the other thing that I wanted to bring up also is the idea that the reaction to studying twists and surprises in books is that they're, quote, the cheapest sort of entertainment. You can imagine that resonated a little with me because we hear a lot about that in romance. Like you hear the the classic denigrations of the genres. Oh, it's all the same. You already know the ending. That's just porn for women. Um, it is very hard to surprise me because I go into a romance knowing the structure, knowing how it's going to end. I know the end is that the hero and the heroine are going to be happy. Like I know that that's where I'm going, but I'm still engaged. And I'm still involved. and I'm still surprised, which is part of why I found your book so interesting because it sort of took apart in pieces how that happens. Even though I know the ending, even though I know that the hero and the heroine are going to get together with the Duke's wager, I sometimes was not sure yeah. exactly who the hero was. I know. And that's a really hard trick to pull off on a romance reader because um, heroes get up to some dastardly things. Right. Of course. I mean, right. You have heel and heel face turns, you know, they're everywhere. Yeah. You're You're ready for them. But the Duke's wager manages to to balance things out in a very cunning way, sort of keeping you in doubt about how the template of the genre is going to line up with the characters that you have. Yes. And it's going to satisfy my expectations as a reader that I will read about a courtship that will end in a satisfying way. Yes. Um, And that I, as the reader will agree that these two people should be together. And then I believe, and I have been convinced of their suitability for each other. Yeah. And the, and sort of of their, uh, how do I put this, right? Their suitability and also their own uh, in buy-in into that suitability, right? Yes. Yes. They're acting with agency in their own uh, lives. They're not being orchestrated into a specific place. Right. Right. Because if you, ha- I mean, so this is a place where that template can be less satisfying rate is if you're like, well, yes, I agree, you know, Jane should wind up with Jack and that's how it should be. But I don't really, but it just feels like they were (laughs) sort of pushed into that position with each other. That's less gratifying, right? Than if I have have definitely, definitely read romances where I'm like, well, I can tell that the heroine wants this person. I think they're terrible, but that's what she wants. So that's why the book is going to end this way. But I personally have not been convinced that these people are ideal for each other. This is one reason why I love it when people say things like, oh yeah, romances, I bet they're really easy to write. Oh, Oh absolutely. Super easy. Go (laughs) ahead. Give it a try. Let me know. It's real hard to write that. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? And, and, one of the things that really interests me in general is this sort of interplay between the satisfactions of plots that and plots and character plots that Mm -hmm. have these 
pleasing mechanics to them that involve, you know, sort of a turn and an overturn and pieces being laid out that like sort of you see that the pieces that were arrayed early on fall into this pleasing, satisfying shape later and so on, that those elements, which really are elements of surprise, are still satisfying and we crave them, um, even if we're not that invested in their being surprising in the sense of, oh, gee, I never saw it coming. Yes. Um, that it's still that that machinery is very gratifying. It's like people who watch Law and Order over and over again. You brought <laughs> right. up television um, crime dramas. The beats yeah. are almost identical episode to episode. Yeah. And yet that that having that expectation met is very satisfying. And that is another form of sort of cognitive examination of why this storytelling works on you, even though you know when every single turn is coming. Yeah. And I think it's really because it gives you this sort of opportunity. So part of what the logic of the surprise plot, even if it doesn't actively surprise you because you know too much about genre conventions or um, or even the specific conventions of, say, law and order, where you're like, oh, it's the second guest star is going to be what you know from watching the opening credits, who's going to be the doer. Yeah, exactly. Um, when you were younger, when you were yeah. when you were younger, did you ever read the Sunfire romances? They were the oh, ones yeah. that had like Roxanne or, yes. or Jenny. Or Amanda or, yeah. Yeah. I was so, writing one of those in, <laughs> in like seventh grade. And I'll tell yeah. you, it didn't come out that well. No, no, yeah. no, me too. One of the things that I learned, because for a lot of readers our age, those were a gateway into the romance genre. Yeah. And one of the things that I learned early on is that the cover art gives away the ending. Yes. Every totally single one's a, right. Every single one's a love triangle, and whoever she's with on the cover, that guy ain't the one she ends up with. So match the cover, and you're gonna know which one's the hero. And that gave me an out because if I knew, oh, that guy's a total jerk, I don't want her to end up with him. I would stop that one and go find another one. Right? You're like, ooh, let me, let me, like, I can scout out whether this is gonna be annoying for me. Crack the code. But you still want it to unfold, right? So you know these things ahead of time, but you still want it to like do it right you know, yes. to have the turns. And so here's part of what I think is going on with that. You know, this is now here we're in the zone of rank speculation. But I love rank speculation. <laughs> Thank you. I'm a professional <laughs> blogger. I speculate all the time. Bring it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the machinery of the surprise plot, the like logic and investment of the surprise plot, um, what it does is it sort of arrays for you this kind of performance of the experience that you can sometimes have in real life of feeling like you have a fresh, an actual insight experience, right? Where you're struggling through some puzzle or problem and suddenly, you know, you have this sort of shift in your understanding of what's going on and the pieces fall into place and what you were struggling through, um, you have this feeling of sudden fresh realization of a new way of looking at it and it gives you this, you know, really satisfying aha feeling right right uh and but in real life you know you can't really get these to order <laughs> you can't no. you can't demand them i mean to a certain extent right that's why people like doing puzzles and stuff right because this mm -hmm. is designed version of this experience but having it enacted for you in these nice satisfying ways even if it's not actually a surprise to you when the aha happens if it's mm -hmm. been orchestrated correctly, it can be very gratifying, I think. Anyway, it feels right. It gives you this nice, it, it is tied up with satisfaction in this way. And so this is why, you know, I, there's this other puzzle, which is why, why do people uh, have a real fondness for genres that dependably <laughs> involve surprises, right? So like mm -hmm. formulaic mysteries, Foxfire romances where you're like, it, it, you know how it's going to unfold. Why should people want to do that again and again instead of wanting to do something that doesn't act like it's surprising you? Like this seems like there's this kind of funny oxymoronic aspect of this. You know, why are, if you, if you're like Fran Libowitz, 
I have this on my list of questions. I want to ask you about this interview. Just tell, just go into this interview because it's freaking amazing. Yeah, well, she's incredible, right? So this is, it's part of a New York Times Sunday magazine about, you know, what's on her bedside table and what she's reading and whatever. And so she says that she loves mysteries, right? Um, But that she doesn't have the foggiest, she doesn't care. She will reread them. She doesn't remember who did it. She doesn't care about who did it. she doesn't try to figure out who did it. She just, that is totally not part of what she cares about, she says, right? Um, and I believe her. But then yeah. if that's the case, so the mystery there, if you will, is then why do you want a mystery novel? Why do you want a detective story if you don't care about the detective part? Right. And, you know, I can relate to this. I mean, I can really relate to it. She says, you know, I've read all the Nero Wolf books and he wrote, I mean, and he really did. He wrote like 70 of them. Um, and she says what? Like he wrote a lot of them, but not enough for Fran. And I feel just the same way. <laughs> I actually went on a Nero Wolf reading marathon, uh, like when I was in the middle of writing this book and read all of them. That must have been quite a hazard. Like I'm writing a book about the plot twists yeah. of books and movies, and I'm going to spoil the hell out of them. I should read all of them yeah, and watch right. them all twice. No, I know. It was really an issue, for sure. I took a lot of baths because <laughs> I read a lot in the bath. So Good you're thing. reading Rex Stout after Rex Stout in the bath. But the thing about them is whether or not you're trying to guess them or whether or not you're trying to, you know, sort of second guess them or anything, they move through those paces of setting up pieces and putting them together. And that gives you this really pleasing structure of... Uh, yeah, you know, I was like cognitive satisfaction around which all the other stuff can flow. So, you know, you can say I read the, yes. the reason I read the Nero Wolfs is not for the mystery. It's for the interactions between um, Nero and Archie, of course, because those are much more interesting. But right. those lovely interactions between Nero and Archie have this very gratifying structure to flow into and you leave on this note of satisfaction. And there's something about that that's just incredibly yes. compelling, whether or not it actually shocks you or not. So I think surprises are more about satisfaction in it's a way different. than they are about surprise often. I completely agree. One of the things that she that you quoted in the book is that mysteries yeah. are tidy and they end, which is true of so little else. And that's something I constantly yeah. hear about with romance. It ends happily. It values happiness and autonomy and, and also your orgasm and very few else, right. any anything else. Very, very few things in this world value happiness, endings, it's, and your orgasm all at the same time. Like very few things. It is like fundamentally about satisfaction. Like it will right. be satisfied. It's very true. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, in a way, you know, I never actually quite say this in the book um, where I say, you know, actually the, the sort of fundamental element of what purports to be surprise. I mean, in many of these cases, you really are surprised, but really it's about satisfaction. It's not just about how surprise is satisfying, but it's actually about how the structure of surprise gives you satisfaction whether or not you're actually surprised if it works right right and if you are pleased by the surprise because the surprise work if the surprise worked without cheating you or treating you like you're dumb um then it's very satisfying to be entertained by something that is openly trying to trick you right i mean right i mean we could and you know i was about to say um, you know, generations of psychoanalytic theorists have already done this, but like you can sure map that speaking of orgasms, right? Onto, right. You know, a little foreplay is appreciated often to get you there. Right? You want to uh, be yeah. teased. You want to be teased and you want to be, you know, brought to various false conclusions potentially before you get to the final conclusion because that makes the final conclusion more satisfying. Absolutely. Just go directly there. So, right. And uh, uh, mystery twists and turns are, you know, a form of foreplay. They are. Absolutely. Readerly foreplay. Yeah. So, you mentioned that you are compiling a list of every work that you spoil in this book. And there's a lot. Yeah. So, you know, I went through, so I have a draft of it, but I have to, I I haven't uh, posted it to my website yet because I feel like I have to double check. And I realized 
along the way that not every work that I mention in the book has any spoilers at all. So it doesn't just do to like go through my index and pull out everything that's cited that's a, you know, creative work that's a film or a short story or a play or a novel. Um, Because some of those actually aren't spoiled. I'm happy to say that it involves no spoiler at all. But um, a lot of them are. And I felt that I should warn people so that they know what they're being spoiled about and to the degree to which they're being spoiled. So um, I have in front of me my draft of this. um, And I see that I have, I I think I'm pretty comfortable with these categories of spoilers. So there's some works where uh, the spoiler is that you learn that something surprising happens in it. Right. Very low level spoiler, but this is still something that can affect the way you approach a story. And of course, this list does the same thing. Right. So this is the problem with spoiler warnings. Right. Is if you have a warning that there's something to be spoiled, there's already potentially a little bit of surprise spoiling. Right. You've already given something key away. Right. You're you're giving away uh, the fact that there is something to give away. Right. Which, you know, I mean... Oh, well, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. It, it, oh, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, then there's also some works in which minor plot points are revealed to a greater or lesser degree of specificity. So like vaguely revealed, recounted in some detail. Um, and there's, you know, larger plot points that may be described vaguely or in some detail. And then there's the category of the big surprises revealed carelessly uh, with no concern for your feelings. As if nothing mattered at all, <laughs> which is a, it's a real category in this book because I, yeah. you know, I have this this habit of saying like, you know, big surprises like X, Y, and Z. Like for example, right. in this work, and I, in the course of a sentence, I just demolish the surprise and then move on like, blithely as if you know, not caring for the wreckage behind me. Right, flames, cars burning behind me, and I'm just moving blithely along. <laughs> You know, like he's been dead the whole time, but you knew. Yeah, that. yeah, as you knew. Like, oh, yeah. come on. Yeah, there's a lot of works that are in that category. I'm, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> so I feel I should warn people. And in fact, um, I got a secondhand report. A colleague of mine who had uh, the galleys in hand mm-hmm. asked if he could lend them to his graduate student because his graduate student was working on some related project and like, right. oh, and it would be useful for him to see this now instead of waiting for it to come out. Sure, sure. So <laughs> then Uh-oh. my colleague reported back to me. So Uh-oh. my student is finding it very useful, but he was distraught because he was planning to go see Murder on the Orient Express. The oh, no. Oh. And that's one where, uh, yes, that is in the category that I have listed here as uh, the big surprise is revealed carelessly as if nothing mattered anymore. Nothing at all. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I did. Oh, well. Oh, well. So, and then my colleague said, well, you know, but she warns you. Because as you mentioned, right, Sarah, there's this this sort of disclaimer in the introduction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you warn everybody, look, I'm going to spoil the hell out of everything. Proceed at your own risk. Yeah. And he said, well, she warned you. And he said, well, I know, but she also did say, you know, that part of how these things work is by getting you to forget some of the details that you read early on. And I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) The warning. (laughs) I said, well, tell him, you know, it's often worth, it's often more enjoyable to see, to enjoy the machinery of the surprise if you know the twist. Yes, that's very true. <laughs> Consolation prize, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> well, at least you know that your 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 cognitive theory checks out. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Story a little, checks out. <laughs> a little field experiment there, unintentionally. Yeah. yeah. No, you you were you were right all along. You were very right about all of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Gratifying, really, indeed. So the question that I ask every person in an interview that I do is if they have any books that they've read that they want to recommend. And I realize you've probably read a whole lot of stuff. (laughs) I have read a whole lot of stuff. It's part of having the P and the H and the D. You got to read a lot of stuff. Well, yeah. And also, as as I was just saying, you know, uh, I spent a lot of time in the bath reading novels 
while I was writing right? this book because you know that that's how that that's how that is. Well, let me tell you the thing that actually I have read since I finished writing this book that is really incredible. It is not a romance in any way. That's okay. I'm here for it anyway. But um, is Nomon by Nick Harkaway. Have you ever read anything Ooh, by him? I have not. Okay. So he's actually John le Carre's son. Oh, that's um, an interesting pedigree and lineage. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. So, but his stuff is mostly um, in one way or another sort of science fictional. Uh, and this book is also a murder mystery. So the mm. setup, and it's about surveillance. So it's about how we hate Facebook only a lot. <laughs> oh, I'm listening. Uh, yeah. So the, the setup is it's, you know, a, a relative, a, nearish future in England where it's a largely benevolent, extremely surveillance state. Uh, and with, you know, AI monitoring of various kinds of things. Right. Uh, so it's this gentle, but clearly dystopian setup. And uh, our protagonist uh, is a detective who is investigating a case where a woman died during what should have been really routine uh, interrogation, but that involves reading her thoughts because that's where we are. What you can do with this AI, right? Yeah. And, uh, and it opens up from there in really wonderful ways. It has it's sort of this multiplying set of narratives. So it has elements of kind of if on a winter's night, a traveler where you get these, you know, you get taken on a, on a narrative trajectory with a new character. Mm -hmm. And just as you're getting to the most exciting part, it stops and you move to something else and so on, but it has wonderful twists and turns. And it's also beautifully written uh, and full of really engaging characters. So it's an investment. It's like, 700 pages or something so it's it's long and and intricate but strongly recommended cool thank you yeah and you recommend the duke's wager i strongly recommend the duke's wager and i recommend um i recommend the nero wolf novels by rex stout oh obviously yes i recommend reading all of them if that's the kind of thing you want to do all in a row yeah, especially if you're writing a book and then you can say, no, this is work. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. <laughs> this is very important work. I'm doing important, important work here. Work in the bath. In the bath. Yeah, I, it, it's fine. This is normal. Exactly. This is how this, this works. Is, yes. This is. <laughs> well, I mean, that was really, I felt great with the Duke's Wager. I was like, haha, this is like my assigned reading. Yeah, welcome to my life. Yeah. That's the best part of my job. That's so good. It really is. I'm I'm fortunate every time I sit down and think, wow, reading is kind of my job. That's freaking rad. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, and I did read, I read, um, also on your recommendation, I read Eleanor and Park. Oh, what did you think? I liked it very much. And it reminded oh, me also that I really like um, this middle reader book called um, When You Reach Me. Ooh. Uh, by Rebecca Steed, or Stead, I don't actually know how it's pronounced, S-T-E-A-D, um, which is a mystery, and oh, and it really is a romance. It's very, Aww. it has a poignant, lovely romance in it, and um, it's set in like, I think, 1979, and is very strongly invested in A Wrinkle in Time. A Wrinkle in Time is a very important element in the book. Uh, and Ooh. also $20,000 pyramid. No way. <laughs> yes. The game $20,000 pyramid. Surprise. So That's a bit random. In which, I mean, I realize it's, it's not exactly the same period, but the ways in which Eleanor and Park is a period piece and also about yeah. issues of class and stuff yes. reminded me of that too. So that's another recommendation that I would definitely. Oh, cool. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this interview. I again want to thank Vera Tobin for hanging out with me and for posting on Facebook about her new book. 
And I also want to thank Harvard University Press for sending me a review copy because that was really cool. Like I said, not an academic, but I found this book to be tremendously interesting. So if you are a scholar of literature or you work with scholars of literature or you maybe order the books for them, you might really like this book. It's called The Elements of Surprise and it is on sale April 16th, 2018. This week's episode is brought to you by What Are You Afraid Of? by Alexandra Ivey. This book sounds like so much Elise bait, I can't even. It also sounds like things that I should not read, but I'm super curious about. Serial abductions, copycat murders. When a best-selling true crime author begins to receive threatening photographs and trophies of murders committed by a killer obsessed with her writing and her research, she enlists the help of the one man with the resources to help her discover the killer's identity before it's too late. What Are You Afraid Of? by New York Times bestselling author Alexandra Ivey is a chilling and pulse-pounding work of romantic suspense that will have you questioning your own fears. What Are You Afraid Of? is on sale now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. And thank you to Kensington for sponsoring this month's episodes. This week's transcript is compiled by Garlic Knitter. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. And is being brought to you by Whiskey Sharp Jagged by Lauren Dane. Victor Orloff took one look at the wary gaze and slow to trust personality of the deliciously sexy and fascinating Rachel Dolan and knew he wanted more than just a casual friendship. But as a natural protector, he knew bossiness and overprotective maneuvering would push her away rather than draw her close. He'll use every tool in his easygoing laid back arsenal to convince her to take a chance on them. When Vic finally drops all pretenses of just friends and focuses all his careful affection and irresistible seduction on her, Rachel knows she's falling hard for the laid-back pretty boy she's discovered has a relentlessly steel spine when it comes to her, and she cannot resist. You can find Whiskey Sharp Jagged on sale now wherever books are sold. We have many ways for you to support the show, speaking of by listening to it by listening to me right now talking that's pretty rad thank you every week i see that the audience for the show gets a little bigger and this is amazing to me i love doing the podcast and i love doing the weekly production Uh, and your enthusiasm and support makes it even more fun if you would like a way to personally support the show you can have a look at patreon.com slash smart bitches if you make a monthly pledge you're helping me continue the show you're helping me commission transcripts in our archives And you keep the show going. So thank you so much for having a look. I want to thank some of our Patreon folks personally. So to Rachel, to Selby, to Esty, Claudia, Love Ann, and Rode, thank you so much for being part of the Patreon. You can also leave a review wherever you listen. That definitely makes a difference. Or you can tell a friend or subscribe or just yell out the window that they should listen to this show. Thank you for hanging out with me each week, regardless of how you show your support. I am honored to be in your eardrums. If you would like more podcasts that focus on romance fiction, have a look at romancepodcasts.com. It will pull up a list of podcasts, which I'm continually adding to, should you wish to add more romance podcasts to your subscriptions. This is the Pete Bog Fairies. I knew you knew that. Our music is provided by Sassy Outwater. Thank you, Sassy. This is Strictly Sambuca. This is from their album Live at 25, which I love. And you can find it at Amazon and at iTunes. And you can find the Pete Bog Fairies on their website, peatbogfairies.com. You can also find links to the album, all of the books that we talked about, plus links about Vera and her research, and the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. And speaking of, I knew you knew there's a website that goes with the podcast, right? Well, here's what's coming up this week. Yay! We have our Smart Bitches movie matinee announcement. This is when we all, we all watch a movie on our own time, because y'all are all over the world. And then at the end of the month, we host a chat and we talk about it. We're going to announce our month's selection. I hope you can watch it and join us. It looks to be a lot of fun. We also have Cover Snark, which is great. We have two editions of Stuff You Should Be Watching because we love to recommend TV shows as well as books. We have some reviews and a rec league where we build recommendation lists based on what readers are looking for. Now, each week I end with a terrible joke. And this joke comes from Jean M., who says that she loves our jokes at the end of the podcast. Thank you. And that she shamelessly stole this joke from the AARP bulletin, which gives me so much joy. 
So uh, thank you to the AARP Bulletin and to Jean for this terrible joke. Are you guys ready? Okay. Why did Marx write in all lowercase? Why did Marx write in all lowercase? Because he hated capitalism. <laughs> I just imagine the person editing the AARP newsletter bulletin like, <laughs> this is so good. You're right, dude, or girl, or whomever, whatever gender you ascribe to. Yes, it's a totally terrible joke. I love it so much. Yay. <laughs> ah, okay. <clears throat> anyway. I'll now be a professional podcaster or something or something akin to that, maybe within the, you know, tri-state area. On behalf of Vera and everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Have a great weekend.